Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Ottawa, Ontario. We're back after a bit of a hiatus. Uh, I am back in Ottawa on a semi-permanent basis. I'm, I'm here uh, for the academic year, at least, uh, after the foray to Boston and then to China. So back in Ottawa, where we will be doing the show for at least the next few months, uh, we took most of the fall off to sort of reset, resettle, and now we're going to come back with some really interesting material, really fun discussions that we've been putting together over the past couple of months. And we're going to start off today with... Uh, a really great discussion that I had with Gregory Clagus, who has written a book entitled The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, Separating Fact from Fiction, in which he looks at the many theories that have surrounded the death of Tom Thompson and the reason why these myths and the different ideas about how he died and, and some would say the conspiracy theories, why they've come up and why they have remained popular. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Gregory Clagus. Gregory Clagus, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, very excited to have you here. This was a, a work to get this done. Um, when you first contacted me, it was back in the spring, I think, I so. um, or over the summer at some point. And then between my being in China for the summer and then the start of the school year, this is the first time we could actually arranged to uh, to talk to each other, but I'm very excited we were finally able to get to, to, to do this because this is a, a really fascinating book, and I think a fascinating idea for a book uh, is to to go back and look at sort of this mystery of Tom Thompson, and of course the, the title is The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, Separating Fact from Fiction. So before we get into the, the core, sort of what the book is about, how you went about doing the research, where did the idea come from? to go back and look at this sort of unsolved mystery in Canadian history? Well, thanks thanks for asking, Sean. Um, the, the question, you know, the issue, the mystery of the death of Tom Thompson goes back for me uh, about 10 years or so. Um, when I was doing my PhD at York University, at some point or another across a listserv, I saw a call for proposals for the Great Unsolved Mysteries in Canadian History Project. And I had done my undergraduate training in art history, and I thought I was sure that this project would be getting all kinds of proposals for military history and all kinds of, uh, you know, urban crimes and these sorts of things. But I suspected that they probably wouldn't getting very much uh, related to Canada's cultural or artistic history. And I was aware that there were questions or mysterious circumstances around Tom Thompson's death. And so I pitched that to them as an ideal Canadian mystery that could be used as a teaching tool for which there were lots of archival resources that could be put online. And they said, hey, that sounds like a great idea for a teaching website. And so we went ahead and created that in 2008. It launched for the Great Unsolved Mysteries in Canadian History Project. The site launched then was called Death on a Painted Lake, the Tom Thompson Tragedy. And Great title. Thank you. And, uh, and so what... what um, what I thought was at that point, because it was used as a teaching tool and the aim was that students would be handling, at least digitally, archival resources 
sources. They weren't getting pre-digested history. They would have to wade through the archival sources just like uh, a trained historian would. And we, we, that's been up now for almost 10 years. And lots of people were using the site after it went up. And I thought with the 100th anniversary of Thompson's death coming, there were lots of things that I didn't include on the site. And there were also a lot more of the sort of the problems in the storytelling about Thompson's death that had become even more exaggerated since the site went up. And so I thought once again, about 100th anniversary of Thompson's death coming up in 2017, it was an ideal time to return to that story and uh, sort of tell my own version of it. And that's interesting because with with this anniversary coming up, I mean, there's there's been so much talk about the, the other big anniversary in 2017, <laughs> uh, and, and here we have this this uh, this other story, and you know that that website, the Unsolved Mysteries website, we, we've talked about it on the show before. It's just, it is a really cool resource, uh, and the fact that you were one of the first ones is, is really spectacular as well. And you talk about some of the archival resources that people would be going through on that site. Uh, I, that's one of the things that really intrigued me when I was reading about the book is because there's sort of, I don't know if conspiracy theories are, or is the right word or different theories as to how Tom Thompson died. The initial reaction I had was, well, maybe there aren't any resources to, to actually answer that question because otherwise there wouldn't be so many different ideas and theories about how it happened. So, so what type of stuff? Are, are people looking at when they go? Or, or are you looking at to answer these questions as well? I, I'm, I'm glad you made that distinction because I think the handling of the archival resources in the past has been one of the real sort of sticky points or problematic points in telling and retelling of this story and speculation about Thompson's death. So in terms of the resources that I was locating, uh, there are a few really critical large collections of things. Um, the National Gallery Archives, the National Gallery in Ottawa, has a collection of documents uh, that were collected by Thompson's patron, uh, Dr. James McCallum. And so we have correspondence between McCallum and the various artists that he was supporting. We have correspondence uh, written by Thompson to McCallum and other associated sorts of things um, you know, between artists about Thompson, etc. So that's a real key group of documents. Um, there's also a key collection of documents in the National Archives or Library and Archives Canada uh, that were generated by an author named Blodwin Davies in the 1930s. And in the 1930s, um, Davies undertook to write a biography of Thompson, and she published it in 1930. In that biography, she only gives Thompson's death about a paragraph and doesn't point to any sort of conspiracies or anything like that. But in the process of writing her biography, she was uh, writing letters and speaking with a whole variety of people who knew Thompson from when he was a boy up to the time that he died. And she kept all of these letters and deposited them with Library and Archives Canada. And they are a tremendous resource because these are people who knew Thompson very well um, before a lot of speculation about his death was taking place. Um, and then there are also various other collections. Uh, so, for instance, in Library and Archives Canada, there's a whole collection of documents that were either um, letters to and from Tom uh, collected by his family or that, that were with his final um, property. But the, the family collected, for instance, with regards to his estate and correspondence that they engaged in in the months after his death. And that, too, is a real valuable collection of documents. Uh, we have things 
books, for instance, in the McCallum collection or the Thompson family collection, telegrams sent at the time of Thompson's death. So we can track almost some of the day-to-day activities or things that were going on. The park ranger who was supervising the search for Thompson kept a daily diary. And that diary is in the Trent University archives. So we can go and see what the park ranger was writing about day to day as the search for Thompson's body was going on. Uh, The Algonquin Park archives also has a really wonderful set of um, documents, of audio files, etc., of people who were there at Canoe Lake or heard various stories in the decades following and recorded their insights. And then beyond that, we've also got a huge collection of secondary history of books and art magazine articles, newspaper articles published about Thompson's death over the last hundred years. That's really interesting that all that stuff is available. And yet it's, it strikes me in, in listening to you talk about that, that, that there's within and don't certainly don't take away the end of the book, but that there, <laughs> there's no sort of smoking gun that would be available in, in all that stuff, that a lot of it would be. And certainly that's this is sort of what historians do is putting together fragments of things and sort of coming to the conclusion of, well, this is probably the most likely thing that happened. And having to go through all those different resources to to find that out, that that's that's a lot of material to wade through. It was a lot of material. And, and where I first sort of started with the story was preparing that death on a painted lake site. And looking at all these sort of secondary accounts, particularly stories told about Thompson's death since the 1960s. And for anyone who's, who's aware of this case, they're likely familiar with some of those key documents that talk about, well, Thompson was murdered or he committed suicide. You, know, also, you refer to conspiracy theories, and I think that's a fairly useful uh, term to use to refer to them. But what I found intriguing is, is sort of the, the basic claims made in these theories when I went back to the primary documents, when I was going through the letters and the telegrams and the diary entries, I didn't find any evidence for them. Mm-hmm. And that to me was really a, a, a surprising discovery. I kept sort of waiting for that smoking gun, for the, you know, the letter or the document or something to say, aha, here's where it all begins. Here's the, that, that critical moment where now I see the thread that started this thing happening. But for for most of the speculation, it is based on ideas or claims that were made long after the events that we're actually talking about. And that's what started me with trying to unravel a lot of these claims that have been made and try to understand where they came from and why they appeared and how much they actually tell us about the real case and how much they tell us more about mythologizing or storytelling about a famous person. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting aspect because in, in some of the stuff I read about the book, it's noted that you know, Tom Thompson dies in 1917, wasn't really well known at the time. And then, you know, 20, 30 years later, people start to write about him, write about his death. And that's when these sorts of things start to gain momentum and, and these different stories come up. And it, that aspect of it's really interesting because, you know, it, it happens to a lot of famous people is that when they die, it's almost like they get more famous, particularly if they're young and they die or if they die in some sort of violent, unfortunate way uh, or, or really a tragic way, uh, you know, the Marilyn Monroe sort of sort of thing. And and, and that is an interesting aspect to this. Why do you think that happens to Tom Thompson, given that he wasn't much of a celebrity necessarily in his day? Why does it sort of come up, you know, 20, 30 years later? 
I think there's a few reasons. As you're suggested and as I explore in the book, certainly when Thompson died, he was by no stretch of the imagination famous. He had sold some paintings. He'd sold a painting to the National Gallery. He'd sold a painting to the provincial government. He'd certainly sold to you know, some individual collectors. But he hadn't exhibited widely. He was not you know, sort of widely accepted in Canada as a brilliant artist or any of these kinds of things. In fact, him and some of his peers, much of their work was getting vilified in the press. Um, but what really became critical is forced, of course, he died, a tragic death. And then in the 1920s, after the group of seven had formed, when they were having their exhibitions or they were getting more popular attention, they pointed to Thompson as a real positive and strong influence on their work. And when they had exhibitions in the United States, in England, in France, they gave his works often a separate room or significant space in their exhibitions. And... In part, this is, you know, paying homage to this, this important sort of missing member who likely would have belonged to the group of seven had he lived. But it was also a way to validate some of the claims that they were making about their own work, that this Canadian landscape, this wild space that they claimed to be painting was really dangerous. You had to be masculine. You had to be brave. You had to be strong to paint it because it could kill you. Mm. And so this this is sort of this notion we've inherited of Thompson, that he loved this wild, dangerous wilderness, and in the end it killed him, and isn't it tragic, and isn't it in a way beautiful, and, and we kind of want to think of ourselves, or think of our country perhaps in this way. That That's really fascinating, because you know, the one thing that, that I talk about with in my classes a lot, we talk about the West and the United States, and that in Canada, sort of, we have the North instead of the West, and sort of this... The, the landscape and the, the meaning of the landscape. And that's really cool that, that the, the messaging of that is sort of taken up by the group of seven in that way as a way to celebrate their own work. And, and that really gets to the core of, to a certain degree, of the mythology and the imagery of what Canada is all about. Absolutely. One of the things I found really intriguing the more I looked at you know, sort of the, the larger body of Thompson's paintings is and even my own misunderstanding of Algonquin Park, where Thompson you know, spent much of his last five years, where he died. And I had always thought of it as this great untouched wilderness. And it was only once I started doing my research that I really began to learn that actually there was significant lumber activity, uh, logging activity taking place in and around the park. When Thompson arrived in Canoe Lake, it had been sort of the epicenter in many regards of the logging industry in the park. Most of the buildings around Canoe Lake, where he died, were built by lumber companies. And there were still all kinds of scenes related to the logging industry in the park that Thompson painted, that he recorded, that he wouldn't have seen necessarily Algonquin Park as some great untouched space, some great untouched wilderness. He would have seen it as quite touched by the logging industry, right. with all kinds of equipment and logs and clear cuts and all kinds of things like that there. And so that, for me, was a really fascinating uh, discovery, too. But you know, what we've inherited, how our thinking about that space has evolved, um, you know, using things like very selective uh, perception of Thompson's work uh, has really changed. Now, in, in that way, in, in how much has the death and the sort of the stories of the death and, and over time then changed the way we interpret the work? I mean, you mentioned that your first degree was in art history, so you've that art historian background. 
that certainly I don't have. And when I look at a painting, I just say that that looks nice or that doesn't look nice. That that's as sophisticated as I get when it comes to painting. But the, does does the story of the death? Uh, you know, certainly you, you talk about how the group of seven used it, and you know different ways in which you know Tom Thompson would have approached something like Algonquin Park. But just the lay person, does does the death affect the way in which we would think about his his work when we go to a gallery? You know, this is a, a sort of a question that I've had for myself because, on one hand, when I when I speak to people, or even you know, I'm at a party and people say, "Well, what is it that you do?" and I tell them about my work on Thompson, I encounter one of two types of responses. One, oh, hey, I when you say the name, I recognize the name, and people may have an image of something like the West Wind or the Jack Pine, these kinds of works that we probably see in almost every public school in Canada and jigsaw puzzles and you know, ties and calendars and you know any gas station across the country probably has something from Tom Thompson hanging in the back sort of thing. Yeah. And in that regard, people are familiar very marginally with Thompson's name, but know nothing about his life or anything else about him. Or alternatively, people know more about his death than they do about his art. And they've approached his life sort of as this murder mystery or this tragic death. And and so in terms of our, our thinking about him and how his death affects our work, it, it really depends on whether people are aware of how he died or not. Um, and I guess once again, I sort of come back to that idea that perhaps in the background, lots of people know about Thompson's art, know about the images, because his death helped to uh, elevate him to some sort of mythic status. I understand how the the thought of he went out on the lake and, and drowned or, or, or whatever, like th- th- there's some theories of the death that logically makes sense to me. There are others that don't. And I'm, I'm curious <laughs> as to why they or where they came from, why they became so popular. Like the idea that he, he was killed in a bar fight. Um, the suicide one is particularly interesting <laughs> because of, of a lover who was pregnant that I guess he just didn't want to father the child as, as a theory. So, so where do these more, to me, extreme or sort of outlandish ones come from? Whereas the ones that are related to the land and that kind of stuff. You know, there's a tie into his work and you can sort of see the logic behind where they come from. But these, these, these other ones, like how did they emerge and how did they become popularized? Well, that was a really intriguing aspect of this story for me, certainly as well. And what I discovered is that a lot of the, the wilder speculation didn't appear around the time of Thompson's death. Perhaps the, perhaps the wildest speculation was uh, some gossip in the fall after he died was maybe he committed suicide. And very quickly, the the family um, pursued those rumors to find out who was spreading them and to ask why they were being spread. And, and then we don't hear anything again about them. But there were a few sort of key or critical moments that invited all kinds of wild speculation. So in 1956, um, a group of four men who had some history in Algonquin Park. They had worked there uh, at some of the kids' camps, and they had cottages in the park. And uh, so this this fall weekend in 1956, they had heard rumors that um, Thompson's body had never actually been removed from the park. Oh. A, a, a little bit of backstory. Uh, when Thompson died, he was first buried in the park, 
And then within a few days, his, his family had the body exhumed and transferred to a family plot outside of Owen Sound, Ontario. So a, you know, a couple of hours away from the park. But these men in 56 had heard stories that the body had never actually been removed, that it still remained in the park. And so they took it upon themselves to test this out. So they went to the cemetery where Thompson was uh, originally buried, and they started to dig. <laughs> With the, sort of the logic was, well, if there's no body there, we're not committing a crime. <laughs> and they dug a couple of holes and didn't find anything. And, you know, they got probably wet and tired and decided, no, this isn't as much fun as we thought it might be. And they thought, we'll dig one more hole, and then we're going home. And they start to dig that hole, and they go down a few feet, and thunk the shovel hits something they pull out some wood that's finished wood they dig a little bit more they pull out something else they pull out bones to shorten the story essentially what happens they pull out these bones they contact a local doctor who contacts the provincial police they realize they found human remains in this burial site where they thought they shouldn't be finding any they believe they've located tom thompson's remains that he's never been removed from the park the OPP, the provincial police, arrive. They exhume the body that's been discovered. There is a big hole in the skull of the body they've discovered. So these men are now sure not only have they found Tom Thompson's remains, but there's a clear indication that he was murdered. He was struck on the head or he was shot in the head and he's been murdered. So this is where one of these moments of speculation really start to take off. And like often this wild speculation happens, the OPP analyze the remains and conclude they're not a European male. They're of an Aboriginal male. The wound in the skull is not a gunshot or is not a blow to the head, but is likely trephination. Hmm. And so in in that regard, they say, look, there's nothing more to investigate here. It's an unidentified Aboriginal man who's been buried. And the one of these four men, William Little, never accepted the OPP analysis. And in 1970, he wrote a book called The Tom Thompson Mystery, where he argued that Thompson had been murdered. Uh, about the same time, he worked with the CBC, and the CBC television produced a documentary called Was Tom Thompson Murdered? And this really uh, started the ball rolling seriously with speculation about Thompson being murdered. There have been some other sort of moments around this where uh, a couple of people have come forward in the 1970s to argue that Thompson committed suicide because he was being pressured to marry a woman. Um, uh, Roy McGregor, who many of your listeners may be familiar with, has offered that Thompson committed suicide because this woman, who he didn't want to marry, was also pregnant, and he didn't want to father her child, and so he had to find some sort of a way out, and he committed suicide. Uh, so those are some of those those key theories. There are others that you haven't mentioned that are you know, depending on your experience with canoeing, et cetera, you may see as wild or not. So there's been suggestions, for instance, that he um, stood up in his canoe to urinate and fell out, uh, that his canoe got dumped over by a water spout. Uh, there have been people suggested that he was attacked by aliens as well. So you can really have a full <laughs> spectrum of theories. Uh, yeah, and, and wasn't there was another one too. I think I read there was a bar fight and he got hit by a paddle. Yes, yeah, so like, no, not so much a bar fight, but there, there was a suggestion made, and this too was by William Little in 1970, and I find even that interesting, that this theory doesn't come up really for about 50 or 60 years, but essentially what William Little proposed is that uh, the night before Thompson is believed to have died, him and a few buddies around Canoe Lake were drinking, and talk turned perhaps to the First World War, 
talk perhaps turned to a debt that someone owed Thompson, or talk turned to this woman who was pressuring Thompson to marry, and a fight ensued with one of probably two men or two possibilities. That during the fight, Thompson fell and hit his head on the fire grate and either died immediately or died later of his wounds, or the fight itself kind of carried on the next day and this aggrieved man that he fought with you know, returned to finish the fight. So stuff like that, though, like why... Like if no one was the, the thing I find amazing though is 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 in Canada, we don't have the same level of conspiracy theorists as certainly in the United States. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about things like you know JFK, um, the 9/11 truthers, like the, the, the even like Martin Luther King. There's some conspiracy theories about that. Like, this seems like such a. a, a exception to the rule of Canada where where we don't have these sort of stories and to have it happen about an artist of all people uh, it, it just seems so out of the norm and, and and you know talking about bar fights or or, or pregnant uh, mistresses or or whatever it is like it just seems so strange in the narrative of, of Canadian history and I'm just wondering for you, like one, do you think I'm right in that assessment? And two, why, why in this case? Like it strikes me that if you want to come up with conspiracies, there's, you know, not to be dismissive of Tom Thompson, but more important people or 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 cases that maybe have a similar level of vagueness. Uh, you know, was just sort of why. That's a it's a really good question as to why this particular case and. There have been others who have speculated around this, and and I, I don't entirely like some of that speculation. So, for instance, I'm thinking um, Roy McGregor has made reference, uh, I think, in one of his newspaper articles about the case, to say, well, these you know these northern people were kind of gullible, and that they were they're looking for some exciting story to tell, and so they've turned it into something bigger than it is. And I don't I don't think that's the case. That would have a pretty limited resonance. We wouldn't be talking about this. You know, as, as say university instructors today, likely if that was the case, um, certainly it wouldn't have generated the kind of publishing history that it has. But <clears throat> there are certainly lots of alternatives, other cases that could be uh, we could tell conspiracy theories about. So why Thompson in particular? And I wonder if it's partly that there's just such a a collection of weird things that happen. So, for instance, that this guy died. Nobody saw him in the middle of a, you know, I would see comparably a relatively pretty busy lake on a Sunday afternoon that he just mysteriously goes missing. That somebody sees his canoe floating on the lake and doesn't do something about it. Mm. That there's all kinds of confusion in communication after his death. Or sorry, when, when it's realized he's gone missing, but his body hasn't been found. There's all kinds of communication problems with the family, with his patron. And so everybody seems to be running around a little bit alarmed and not quite knowing what to do and not sure who's responsible for making decisions. Um, once the body is discovered, all of that happens again with what do we do with his body? Right. The fact that his body gets exhumed within a few days, that the coroner shows up to do an inquest and the body's already been buried. Right? There's all these sorts of strange things that happen that lead us to think, this couldn't just possibly be, you know, sort of the, the the normal confusion of an isolated rural community trying to handle a tragic death. 
Mm. And then this discovery of a body in 1956 raises once again this issue of, haha, clearly something's at play here. We don't have the full story. And so it invites, it, it's, it's rich ground for a conspiracy theory. It's rich ground for all this kinds of storytelling. Yeah, whenever a body is moved, there tends to be, you know, always questions about that, right? Like, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so, and, and, but, you know, the fact of it would be that, you know, so, sort of, again, and, and looking at it completely as sort of an outsider to it, that, you know, you often want to come to a case like this and say the most logical answer is usually the, the, the real one. Uh, so, I mean, if he goes out canoeing, I mean, I'm not an experienced canoeer. I've been on a canoe a couple of times. There, they can tip over pretty easily, <laughs> uh, right? So that that would be logical to me. And and you know when you were talking about when they found a body, you know people have been living on that land for thousands and thousands of years. So it's not unheard of that you'd find a body there. Like you know it 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 these are just sort of logical things uh, that that would come to it. But I, I can also see the attraction to the to the other side of it. And I think the fact that, you know, for a hundred years, there has been no definitive answer is, I guess, what is so intriguing about it. One of the sort of surprising responses that I've received to the book is a, a few people who have said, oh, I enjoyed the book and it's well-researched and all the kinds of nice things that an author likes to hear. But then there has also been the, the sort of the claim or dismissal of you've wrecked this story. <laughs> and I, I, I really, I mean, the, the, that idea I find a little perplexing, but it does speak to how attached people are to the, the allure of the mystery, mm-hmm. that it's more interesting or exciting to not know and to be confronted with, here's the documents we have, here's the evidence we have, and here's a logical analysis of those things, isn't the kind of, perhaps, things people want to talk about, you know, around a, a campfire on a mm-hmm. summer night. And and that may also help to speak to sort of the, the power of the mythology around this death, that maybe lots of people don't really care one way or the other about the facts of the case, what they like is the story, the excitement, the mystique of it. Well, it, it reminds me of a line from The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, which is one of my favorite movies, at the end where they say, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Right? Like, that's what people want. Um, which which sort of leads me to the, the question that, like, I, again, I don't want this to sound dismissive of the book uh, in terms of trying to find out the truth, but does it matter how he died then? Uh, you know, does does the the way in which he died matter, or is it simply the existence of these stories and the fact that we can mythologize and theorize, and, and it keeps a conversation going about not just the event, but about Tom Thompson, and that a definitive answer, it'd be, it's nice to have, it would be nice to know, but with the lack of a definitive answer, you know, isn't necessarily the that big of a, a deal that it's the, the bigger deal is more the conversation or, or is that definitive answer really central? Do you think to, to sort of put a bow on everything? I, I think this is a really uh, a, a useful question that I had to ask myself when I was undertaking this book, because when I first set out, my aim was not to answer the question of how did Tom Thompson die? 
what I undertook was to better understand how did all of this speculation come about and to sort of separate the, the mythology, the speculation from the facts of the case, simply to say, look, here are the facts we have, because I, I couldn't fully understand it or reconcile all the secondary stories told after Thompson had died with what I saw in the evidence. But what I discovered over time is the more I looked at the evidence, m most of the theories just made no sense. There was nothing there to support them. Now, that being said, uh, and I, I think as you mentioned earlier, we are never likely going to find that smoking gun or that smoking paddle or however you want to refer to it <laughs> to explain or to authoritatively say, here's how Tom Thompson died. And answering that question, certainly it would satisfy all kinds of curiosity about the case. But it at this point, 100 years later, is not likely going to fundamentally uh, reposition him within Canada's history or Canada's cultural history. But what I think, at least for me in undertaking the book, and I hope perhaps for readers of the book, what they would find interesting is, as public history, I think it is really important, this sort of exercise, because what it allows us to do is to better understand how we make our own history, how we make our own sense of ourselves, and that those myths, those stories, don't always correspond to reality, that they satisfy very contemporary needs and desires. For my own sort of beliefs about Thompson, um, I'm reminded of uh, uh, something that Harold Town, another famous Canadian painter, said in a book that he wrote in the 70s. Um, and he referred to, you know, people talking about Tom Thompson's death, he referred to them as club-footed ghouls muddying the water uh, of the you know around the really important stuff, which is Thompson's art, mm. and that's what I always come back to is that regardless of how Thompson died, here is a man with very little art training who, in a very short period of time, created a, a significant body of paintings that has gone on to really become a, a touchstone, a reference point for most Canadians when they think about Canadian art. And on one hand, how he died is irrelevant to that, but how we understand his place in our society. Uh, depends on or is built upon in some ways how we think about his death. And, and I think I saw in, in another interview you gave, you, you talked about how one of the things that perhaps you were hoping with this book was to get away from the narrative that Canadian history is boring and that something like this could be an entry point for people into that, that larger Canadian narrative and get people interested in Canadian history. But that strikes me as one of the biggest challenges in something like this as well, because if people are attracted to the, the, the intrigue and the mystery around the death, making that pivot and that transition to, oh, by the way, like this guy was an artist, like we should also talk about his art, that, that strikes me as a difficult thing to do. So I'm just curious, like stylistically, methodologically, you know, how do you, how do you sort of reconcile that the people who would be coming for the the intrigue of the death and then to to keep them for the art itself which is ultimately you know as you said sort of you know what we should be remembering tom thompson for well uh in that regard i i i have to accept or i work under the premise that not everybody wants to know about canadian art who right. comes to this book they might go oh, you know they're they're people who like crime stories they're people who are interested in algonquin park and many of the people that i talked to are interested in the book you know sort of know thompson on the margins but they're really interested in algonquin park or the north or the environment and so <clears throat> from from my perspective with the book 
it's great if people want to know more about Thompson's art. And certainly in the course of the book, they learn more about you know, sort of that, that context of Canadian cultural creation in the first half or first quarter of the 20th century. But they can also learn about, for instance, the history of Algonquin Park, of northern Ontario. They can learn about Canadian involvement in the First World War on pressures to men to, to volunteer to fight and, and how men may have avoided having to go and fight. All these sorts of issues as well, all relevant social, cultural, environmental issues for that time period, that there are all kinds of points of entry and also of exit. That when people have read the book, they go, I want to know more now about the history of Algonquin Park or of you know, Canadian involvement in the First World War and you know, people who stayed at home, what life was like. Um, maybe about um, you know, c- control over alcohol in the period. Like, there's all these sorts of questions uh, that the book raises, explores, refers to, that ideally people start off thinking, oh, I'm not going to learn a whole lot about Canadian history here. It's going to be a, a juicy murder mystery. And come away from the story realizing, oh, gee, you know, I have learned some things and I would like to learn some more now. And, and yeah, hopefully that, that is how people react to the book and... and... Uh, again, very interesting story. Again, the title of the book, The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, Separating Fact from Fiction. That is Gregory Cleggis, the University of Guelph. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. So there you have it, my conversation with Gregory Cleggis. And, of course, we thank him for coming on the show. And once again, the book is The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, Separating Fact from Fiction. We would encourage you to go check it out. It's through Dundurn Press, available both as a paperback and an ebook. And if you have any questions or comments for the podcast, history slam at gmail.com, Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.